Right, so good evening everyone. Um, we're really delighted to have Christian List with us today, who's come all the way from the LSE, long, arduous journey um, up Southampton Row. Uh, Christian will be very well known to many people in the room, uh, maybe for his earlier career uh, when he worked primarily in decision theory and was a member of the uh, Department of Government at the LSE. And uh, Christian, I think, is, is extremely well known as one of the most subtle theorists of philosophy of economics and political philosophy working today. But he has another life, which has meant he's migrated from the government department to the philosophy department, the LSE. He's now a fully-fledged member of the philosophy department, working on free will. Uh, he has a book coming out maybe next month called Why Free Will is Real. And we are going to get maybe something overlapping a little bit with the book, but uh, I'm told this is the first time this pre presentation has been given, so this is a sort of world premiere in this talk for us tonight. So, Christian. Yeah, thank, well, thank you very much. Um, uh, thank you for the invitation. It's uh, great to be here. Uh, I'll try to not block the um, screen, but I hope you can all see me and uh, hear me. Um, so my title is What's Wrong with a Consequence Argument in Defense of Compatibilist uh, Libertarianism? So as you um, all know, uh, it's widely argued that um, free will is um, incompatible with determinism. And the most prominent argument um, for this incompatibility thesis um, is uh, Peter Van Inwagen's uh, consequence argument, which I'm going to explain properly in a moment. And um, this argument is widely thought to um, establish that if the world was deterministic, uh, then we could not have uh, free will. And I want to offer a new diagnosis of what is wrong with this argument. Now, both proponents of the argument and critics typically accept the way in which the argument is framed, um, and then the disagreement is normally over whether the premises of the argument are true and also whether the rules of inference um, that are employed in the argument um, are acceptable. And critics of the argument um, are then typically invited to say which of the premises they reject uh, or which of the rules of inference they deny. But I want to uh, attack this argument in a slightly different um, way. <clears throat> I want to um, suggest that the argument actually involves a category mistake. Um, and uh, in particular, I claim that the argument conflates two different levels of description in which we can think about um, um, agents, uh, free will, the laws of nature, determinism, indeterminism. Namely, on the one hand, the physical level at which we describe the world from the perspective of fundamental physics and where we talk about the fundamental laws of nature and where we talk about such things as to whether um, physics at the most fundamental level is deterministic. And then on the other hand, the agential level at which we describe agents and their actions, so what people can and cannot do, um, whether there is such a thing as um, free will. And um, in short, um, my claim is that the consequence argument mixes these two levels of description in a problematic way. Now, the diagnosis that I'm going to offer is based on an account of free will as a higher level phenomenon. I've been developing uh, this account uh, and have looked at a number of different aspects of this account, though, uh, as uh, Joe said uh, tonight, I'm going to um, uh, use this account uh, for the first time to um, attack the consequence argument. I will call this account compatibilist libertarianism. Um, I already heard that you know, some people uh, found the label a little bit uh, puzzling or paradoxical, but I hope that by the end of the talk, uh, you will see why the label uh, makes uh, a lot of sense. OK, here's the plan for the talk. Um, I'll begin with an overview of the consequence argument. Um, then I'll run through some standard responses, but mainly just to set them aside. Um, although there is an interesting literature on those standard responses, but that's just not my topic for tonight. And I will then develop my own response. Um, I'll back this up uh, with the help of a little um, formal analysis. 
And then I'm going to suggest that there are two valid arguments in the vicinity of the original consequence argument. And they look a lot formally like the consequence argument, but one of them I'm going to suggest is formulated at the physical level of description, the other one at the agential level of description, and neither of these two arguments establishes the uh, intended incompatibilist uh, conclusion, and then I'll wrap up. <clears throat> okay, so let's begin with the consequence argument. So this will require just a little bit of um, careful uh, setting up. The central notion employed in this argument is a modal operator called um, n, and um, for any proposition p, np is interpreted to mean something like the following, namely, p is true, and there is nothing anyone could have done to make it false. <clears throat> so you might say, just as a rough shorthand, np means something like p is agentially inevitable. But this is a sort of rough gloss. Uh, the uh, quoted phrase uh, is a slightly more um, precise gloss of or precise uh, um, wording of, of what is intended here. P is true, and there is nothing anyone could have done to make it false. But just as a shorthand, I'm going to say P is agentially inevitable. Now, to construct his argument, Van Inwagen proposes two rules of inference. One is called rule alpha. This says, um, from necessarily p, we can infer np, or inevitably p, where um, necessarily, or this box uh, operator that I've got on the slide here, is just an ordinary necessity operator, which stands for something like true in all possible worlds, or let's say true in all nomologically possible worlds, all those worlds that are permitted by the laws of nature. And rule beta, the second inference rule that uh, he proposes to use, says, um, from NP and N if P then Q, we can infer NQ um, uh, where the if then is just understood as a standard material implication arrow. So um, slightly more informally put, uh, if P is inevitable and if P then Q is also inevitable, uh, then Q is inevitable. <clears throat> now, um, we're going to introduce a proposition P subscript zero um, which describes the fully specified physical state of the world at some time in the remote past. So think of this as a full description of the initial state of the universe, maybe at the time of the Big Bang or shortly after the time of the Big Bang, something along those lines. And then we're going to write L to denote a proposition that describes the <clears throat> fundamental laws of um, physics. And finally, um, we're going to look at a proposition P which describes a particular agent's action that we're interested in, and that's the action of which we want to figure out whether it was um, freely performed. Um, so an example might be, um, you know, earlier on, um, Joe very kindly offered me a hot drink, and I had a choice between coffee and tea, and I chose uh, a cup of tea, and so the proposition might be, you know, Christian um, uh, had a cup of tea, or something like this. And so we want to uh, know whether um, my act of uh, uh, choosing the tea uh, was, was freely performed or not. Now, the idea is that the action in question was freely performed only if it is not the case that NP, so the action was freely performed only if P is not uh, agentially inevitable. If P is agentially inevitable, if it so happens that NP then that means uh, P is true and there is nothing anyone, or you know, I in this case, could have done to make it false. And in this case, um, the action would not count as uh, freely performed. I certainly in this case would not have been able to do otherwise if we go with the intended interpretation of the argument. So let me now run you through the consequence argument. <clears throat> So here on the slide, I've just put a glossary again just to uh, remind you of uh, the various uh, formal ingredients. So again, P sub zero uh, is a proposition fully describing the initial state of the world. L is a proposition fully describing the laws of physics. And then P is the act proposition in which we're interested. And we've got these two inference rules which say from necessarily P we can infer NP or agentially inevitably P and a rule beta says from NP and N if P then Q we can infer NQ. So here's the argument. 
the first uh, step of the argument is just to assert uh, determinism. We want to uh, take determinism here as a premise because we want to figure out uh, whether uh, determinism is or is not compatible with uh, free will. And uh, the thesis of determinism in this argument is just formulated as the claim necessarily um, if P0 and L then P, what this simply means is that it's necessarily true that if the initial state is as specified and the laws are as they are, then um, this uh, particular act proposition is also going to um, hold. And surely we can agree uh, that, that this is a perfectly acceptable uh, statement of the thesis of determinism. <clears throat> then step two um, uh, just uh, applies just a little bit of elementary logic to um, uh, rewrite uh, this, this proposition. Uh, so if uh, the uh, proposition in step one holds, then we can infer from this that necessarily um, if P0, then if L, then P. So far, um, there's nothing unusual going on. At this point, uh, we are able to make use of one of the two rules of inference that Van Inwagen has introduced, namely rule alpha, which tells us that from necessarily P, we can infer NP or agentially inevitably P. And uh, since we have uh, necessarily followed by the long formula in step two, we can then infer N followed by the long formula in step uh, two. So uh, it's now inevitably the case that if P zero, then if L, then P. Um, in step four, we're going to add another premise, namely the premise which says NP0, that is to say the, it is true that the initial state of the world is as described here, and in addition, there's nothing anyone uh, could have done to make that uh, false, so let's grant this as a premise. In step five, um, we... Um, use uh, the previous two steps, three and four, and now we apply the second um, uh, inference rule. And uh, we can then infer uh, that we also have n if l then p, so inevitably if the laws are the way they are, uh, then p is going to uh, hold. And uh, we're then going to add one further premise, uh, namely uh, nl, so that is to say the laws are true, and there is nothing anyone uh, could have done to render those laws uh, false. Surely that's also a perfectly plausible premise. And then um, uh, taking the previous two steps and applying uh, inference rule beta one more time, we can infer NP, which is to say that P is true and there is nothing anyone uh, could have done to make it false. Uh, in other words, um, you know, not only is it true that I was going to have my T, but there is nothing anyone, including myself, could have done to, to make this uh, false. So there is a sense then in which my having the T rather than the coffee was agentially inevitable, and then surely it could not have been a free action. So that's, that's the argument. And uh, what I've uh, reproduced here, I take it as just a standard textbook statement of the consequence argument. I mean, there are subtly different versions out there, but this one will do. So in short, um, if determinism holds, uh, then uh, we have NP, uh, which in turn implies that the action described by P is not um, free. If we grant the two inference rules, alpha and beta, this is certainly a valid um, argument. The two premises, namely NP0 and NL, so both the initial state of the world and also the laws of nature, are in this sense agentially inevitable. Those two premises are hard to reject. Um, given all this, determinism seems incompatible with free will. So that's basically Van Inwagen's consequence argument. Okay, so let's look at some standard responses. <clears throat> now incompatibilists typically accept this argument and then they conclude uh, that there could be no free will in a deterministic world. That's the intended conclusion of, of the argument. So if you are an incompatibilist of the uh, uh, you know, mainstream variety within incompatibilism, then 
you're, you're basically finished at, at, at this point. Um, libertarians then hold further that determinism is false and uh, that there is, in fact, um, free will. Um, but compatibilists, on the other hand, uh, tend to reject uh, the consequence argument. And there are a variety of different ways in which um, one might do this. So this, uh, let's just look at some uh, compatibilist responses. Um, so one compatibilist response would be to offer a compatibilist reinterpretation of this N operator, this what I called agential inevitability operator, under which one of the key inference rules, namely rule alpha, no longer applies. So rule alpha said from box P or from necessarily P, we can infer NP. So necessarily P implies uh, P is inevitable in this agential sense. Um, now, if we adopt um, a conditional interpretation of an agent's ability, um, then we might be able to block this inference rule. So in particular, we might interpret NP as the negation of the conditional if the agent had attempted to act otherwise, then he or she would have succeeded and P would not have been true. So you might simply say, let's interpret NP as the negation of this conditional. Um, if you go uh, along this route, then you will see that this conditional can be true um, even if in the actual world the agent necessarily um, did not attempt to do otherwise because uh, for the conditional to be true, the only thing that has to be true is that in the nearest possible but you know, counterfactual world in which the agent tried to do something else, they would have succeeded, but there's nothing in um, this uh, uh, requirement that says that the antecedent of the conditional must itself have been nomologically um, possible. And so therefore, it's uh, entirely um, compatible to say on the one hand, necessarily, um, uh, uh, necessarily P, and yet uh, the negation of this conditional holds so that we do not have um, NP. And for this reason, rule alpha is blocked. Um, the truth of necessarily P then becomes compatible with the uh, falsity of uh, NP reinterpreted in this conditional way. And this is an old point just applied here to the consequence argument, the conditional um, interpretation of uh, can do otherwise or alternative possibilities has been out there in the compatibilist literature for a very long time. So that's one way to respond. Another response uh, would focus not so much on rule alpha, the first of the two inference rules, but rule beta, the second inference rule, which says from NP and N if P then Q, we, we can infer NQ. And uh, the second response uh, would say, well, if we accept this second inference rule, rule beta, um, then this would license a bunch of problematic inferences. In particular, it would uh, permit um, the so-called agglomeration inference, um, which says that from NP and NQ, we can infer uh, NP and Q, and there are a variety of uh, suggested counterexamples in the literature uh, that you know, cast doubt on whether um, we, we, we should really Ad admit this ag uh, agglomeration inference in the case of the um, N operator. And again, there is uh, some debate about uh, you know, what one might say here. A further response um, is to deny that the action can count as free only if NP is false. Um, so um, you know, we might uh, insist that even though um, NP is true, where P is the proposition you know, Christian chose his T, uh, even though that is true, um, there is some other sense in which my action still counts as free. Maybe um, the ability to act otherwise, can do otherwise, is not at all a necessary condition for um, freedom here, but um, all that is required for freedom is something like intentional endorsement of my action or ownership of my action, and you know, maybe I still stand in the right kind of intentional endorsement or ownership relation with my action of having the T, even though there is a sense it was, it was a sense in which it was agentially inevitable uh, for me to, to drink the tea. 
Okay, so here I just want to acknowledge these various compatibilist responses, uh, but I want to set them aside. They're not my topic today. Um, for a good overview, um, I refer you to uh, Vivalence 2011 um, article. Um, but now I want to turn to a different uh, response to the argument. So here is my response. So I'm going to focus on a feature of the consequence argument um, whose significance is seldom acknowledged. Um, and this feature is that the argument involves two different kinds of propositions with two different kinds of modal notions. On the one hand, there are propositions about the fully specified physical state of the world and what it necessitates under the laws of um, physics. But then on the other hand, there are also propositions about the actions that an agent could or could not do. And in the consequence argument, going through uh, the long list of steps, um, you know, we've got both of these uh, propositions. Even more importantly, the consequence argument actually combines physical and agential ideas via what I call mixed propositions. Um, examples of those mixed propositions are n p sub 0, n l, and n if p sub 0, then if l, uh, then uh, p. Now, think about those propositions for a moment. So um, n was intended to be some kind of agential inevitability uh, operator, which is clearly a modal notion uh, that has to do with what agents uh, can or cannot uh, achieve or avoid. By contrast, uh, P0 is meant to be a full description of the physical uh, state of the world uh, at some time in the remote past. L is meant to be a full description of the fundamental physical laws of nature. And then uh, this uh, longish um, proposition uh, within the scope of the last uh, you know, N operator in the last formula, uh, if P sub 0, then if L, then P, um, that's a proposition that mixes these different things. So P uh, was intended to be an act proposition describing uh, what I as an agent uh, do. Um, by contrast, P sub zero and L uh, were meant to be these um, physical level propositions. So we're mixing all of this. And in particular, we are putting uh, some physical level propositions within the scope of our agential modal operator. So that's sort of what's going on here. Um, okay, so the argument in effect presupposes that there is a unified level of description at which we can adequately talk about both fundamental physics and intentional agency, and where we can combine propositions asserting fundamental physical facts with operators capturing agential abilities. If we didn't have this unified level of description at our proposal, uh, at our disposal, <laughs> we'd, we'd not be able to um, formulate the argument uh, precisely. Okay, now, if you are, um, if, if you look at this, then, well, you might say, well, from a philosopher's armchair, um, this all looks uh, pretty innocuous. Um, after all, um, the argument is formulated in a kind of combination of ordinary language and elementary logic. I mean, there is some elementary logic, but then there is also some ordinary language guidance as to how to interpret the elementary logic. And um, this combination of, of ordinary language and elementary logic seems to allow us to talk quite seamlessly about everything ranging from elementary particles to human abilities. And for this reason, um, this uh, presupposition about there being a unified level of description uh, underlying the argument that seems pretty innoc innocuous and it's also quite easy to overlook the presence of this presupposition. But I want to suggest that this presupposition is really quite um, problematic. Now, what would it take to spell out this argument a little bit more precisely? Um, so first of all, we would have to employ scientifically exact language to express each of the propositions uh, occurring within the argument. Um, and in particular, propositions P sub zero and L would need to be expressed using the resources of our best theory of fundamental physics, because presumably those are the resources needed to talk about 
um, the laws of nature and also those are the resources needed to talk about the full physical state of the world um, you know, at the time of the Big Bang. This would presumably involve uh, concepts like particles, fields, and forces, various equations capturing the dynamics over time and so on. Then the necessity operator box would have to express a no modal notion that is suitable for fundamental physics, maybe nomological necessity uh, relative to the physical laws of nature. And up to this point, the language of fundamental physics seems to be the right one for thinking about uh, all of this. But now let's move on and uh, look at proposition P, which was meant to be an act proposition that describes a particular agent's action. And let's also look at this operator N, which is meant to refer to what some agents could or could not have done. I informally called it an agential inevitability um, operator. Um, so remember, NP means uh, P is true and there is nothing anyone, any agent could have done to make it um, false. Now, neither intentional actions nor agents' abilities uh, are arguably things that we can talk about in the language of fundamental physics. Um, uh, as I like to make the point, um, if you look at the world only through the concepts and categories of fundamental physics, you're going to see particles, fields, and forces. You're going to see maybe uh, Schrodinger's equation or whatever uh, uh, other um, uh, specification of certain fundamental laws. But you're not going to see uh, agents and their intentions and mental states and actions and goals and preferences and any of this. Um, these are very much uh, higher level notions that are absent uh, from the language of fundamental physics. Uh, in the language of fundamental physics, we can't even talk about tables, trees, and chairs, only about particles, fields, and um, forces. Um, all of these other things are very much uh, higher level entities, uh, which we only uh, you know, adequately talk about once we move um, away from, let's say, microphysical descriptions to some more macroscopic higher level discourse. <coughs> Agency related concepts like belief, desire, intention, and choice are absent from fundamental physics. And so even a sentence like Christian prefers reading books to watching movies, so he chooses the former over the latter, just do not belong to um, fundamental physics, if we want to talk about agents and their actions, we must really switch to an appropriate language of psychology or the kind of language that we employ in the theory of intentional agency um, in which we can express concepts pertaining to intentional agency uh, and in which we also have at our disposal the relevant modal notions like the agential can, which um, you know, plays a crucial role for reasoning about um, free will. So even the language of neuroscience may be too low level for speaking properly about uh, agents and their actions. In the language of neuroscience, we may, be, we may be able to describe the neural correlates of intentional thought and, and action. We may be able to talk about the um, neural realizers of the relevant um, uh, you know, higher level agential phenomena, but those neural correlates must not be mistaken for the higher level psychological phenomena that they underpin. As many um, philosophers have argued we must not confuse the mind uh, with the brain. The brain is a biophysical system in which neural processes um, occur, uh, in which various physical properties stand in causal relationships with one another. By contrast, the mind is a higher level phenomenon which plausibly supervenes on the brain but cannot be identified uh, with it. Um, Mental states, for instance, uh, have various meaningful contents uh, and stand in, for instance, uh, uh, semantic relationships or relationships of reference or re relations of logic, uh, relationships of, um, of you know, rational connection with, with other such states. Uh, by contrast, uh, uh, the underlying physical brain states um, uh, are best understood as uh, just um, standing in causal relationships with one another and as uh, being part of various um, <coughs> physical causal processes. So the bottom line is fundamental physics talk and intentional agency talk operate at two different levels of description. 
And we cannot use the language of fundamental physics uh, to speak uh, of what agents can and cannot do, just as we cannot use the language of psychology or that of any other special science to describe the fully specified physical state of the world and the fundamental laws of um, physics. Physics. Moreover, each of these levels of descriptions comes uh, with its own modal notions. Um, so I want to emphasize that physical possibility and physical necessity, um, let's say nomological necessity relative to the fundamental physical laws of nature, are not the same as psychological possibility and psychological necessity. So we must not confuse something like nomological possibility in the physical sense with um, something like uh, agential uh, inevitability in the um, uh, agency level sense. So at this point, um, I want to uh, just uh, make uh, three key points. The first is that if we try to formulate the consequence argument in fundamental physical terms alone, we would not express proposition P and the N operator adequately because those belong to the agential level. If, uh, on the other hand, we tried to formulate the argument in agential level terms, uh, we would not express <coughs> propositions P0 and L and the necessity operator box adequately because these in turn belong to the fundamental physical level. Uh, but even more importantly, um, I suggest that it's doubtful whether mixed propositions, which are already mentioned, like NP0, NL, N, if L, then P, and so on, it's doubtful whether those mixed propositions are meaningful because N and P are agential level propositions while P0 and L are physical level ones. And what is particularly problematic about those mixed propositions to sort of really uh, put my finger on my concern about those mixed propositions is that <laughs> It's not clear whether it makes actually I, I do not think it makes sense to put fundamental physical level um, propositions such as P0 and L within the scope of an agential level modal operator such as um, N. Uh, so a key point on which I'll say a little bit more as we move along is that um, uh, the agential level modal operator really ranges over agential level propositions and you um, can't really meaningfully put a physical level proposition within the scope of the agential level operator. So where are we heading? What I want to show now is that if we carefully separate those two levels of description, we can resist um, the consequence argument. I just need to make one qualification before moving on. Um, a critic might object that I'm postulating too much of a disconnect between these two levels. Um, in particular, um, if you accept some form of physicalism, then you would uh, hold that um, all the agential level facts uh, supervene on physical level facts. And that, in turn, might lead you to wonder how I could uh, assert that there is such a strong disconnect between these two levels. But what I say in response is that what I'm arguing is completely consistent with the view that everything in the world, including intentional agency, supervenes on the physical. My claim is merely that the physical and agential levels are conceptually distinct. We use different concepts and categories at each level, at, along with different level-specific modal notions. So I'm assuming a picture of supervenience without reducibility. So you know, nothing in this talk forces me to deny the supervenience of, let's say, the psychological on the physical. All I need to insist is that um, psychological level descriptions are not reducible to physical level descriptions. Psychological level modal operators are distinct from physical level ones. And most importantly, uh, we cannot meaningfully put physical level, fundamental physical level propositions within the scope of psychological level modal operators. But all of this is consistent with accepting the supervenience of the psychological on the physical. Okay, now I want to make um, uh, things a little bit more formally precise and um, in order to uh, clarify what I take to be the relationship between the physical and the agential levels um, for the purposes of my argument here, 
uh, I want to use a simple model in which the world is represented as a dynamical system. Specifically, we are going to consider a system whose states uh, evolve over time. Time will be represented by some set T of points, which are linearly ordered. I mean, in the simplest case, you could think of time as being represented by the real numbers or by the natural numbers. You know, just to keep it simple for the discussion, let's suppose um, time is, uh, t takes the form of uh, you know, the discrete points, point time zero, time one, time two, time three. Nothing uh, really hinges on this assumption. The system's uh, state at any point in time is given by an element of some state space. The state space is just a set of all possible states that the system could be in. And then a history of the system is a trajectory um, of the system through the state space across time. So formally, that's a function from time into the state space, um, called this function h for history. And then we are going to write h of t to denote the state of the system at uh, time t. Histories in this uh, simple model play the role of possible worlds. So each possible history is just one possible uh, world for our system here. And we're going to write omega to denote the set of all nomologically possible histories. So all histories that are permitted by the laws of physics, the laws uh, governing the um, dynamics of this um, system. And by the way, this is a kind of stylized representation of how um, you know, we tend to think about the laws of nature in at least some um, areas of um, fundamental physics. Now, physical level propositions uh, pick out subsets of um, omega. I mean, in the standard sense, uh, propositions can be thought of as picking out subsets of the set of possible worlds. And so if omega is the set of all nomologically possible um, physical histories, which play the role of um, possible worlds, then propositions pick out subsets of omega. A proposition P is true at some history H if and only if um, this history H is contained in the subset that's picked out by that um, proposition. Um, now, normally, of course, we use sentences in a suitable language to express propositions. We don't just, uh, you know, t uh, we don't, we don't just pick out these subsets of omega. But you know, we have a, a language with uh, explicit descriptions to. Um, talk about those propositions. And so a consequence of this, and this is just a sort of side note that um, I um, you know, would like to emphasize in the background, a consequence is that the set of linguistically expressible propositions may actually be a proper subset of the set of all possible subsets of omega, insofar as um, if the language that we use is countable, then the set of uh, linguistically expressible propositions is also uh, going to be countable. And uh, actually, all the standard languages that we tend to use, including English, but also the various uh, standard languages in formal logic, are, are countable. Um, by contrast, uh, um, if the uh, set of uh, nomologically possible physical histories uh, is uh, infinite, then it has uncountably many subsets. So there could be far more subsets of that set than uh, uh, there can be sentences in a language to, to describe them. But that's just a, a, a side note, um, which uh, may be of some relevance for you know, rebutting a, a bunch of objections that, that could come up. That's why I'm, my, why I'm mentioning it. OK, now I need to introduce modal operators, um, such as box for necessity or diamond for possibility. And to do, uh, to do this, we need an accessibility relation between possible worlds, between the elements of omega. And clearly, whether one history is accessible from another depends on the time in question. And I'm going to say that history H is accessible from another history H prime at time t, if and only if the two histories have the same initial segment up to time t and diverge at most thereafter. That's a very natural um, idea. Um, so if you, uh, you know, look at two possible histories um, and you want to know at a particular point in time is one accessible from the other, um, then all you need to ask is whether they share the same initial segment. If they do, then they are mutually accessible. If not, um, they are not. 
Now, necessity and possibility can be defined in the completely standard way. Proposition P is necessary in history H at time T, if and only if P is true in all histories H prime that are accessible from history H at time T, and then possibility is just the dual of this. Proposition P is possible in history H at time T, if and only if P is true in some history H prime that is accessible from H at uh, T. So those are just standard definitions of possibility and necessity um, within this framework. Now, up to this point, I've described the um, system at the, uh, what I've taken or what I've interpreted as the fundamental physical level. Um, now I want to turn to the agential level. So to introduce agential level propositions and agential level modal operators, we must re-describe our system accordingly. And I'm going to um, uh, write outline S. Um, so you'll hopefully see uh, on the screen, this is meant to be an outline font. Uh, so I'm going to write outline S to denote the set of all possible states of our system as described at the agential level. Each state uh, in outline S may specify all the relevant agents' mental attitudes and actions at the time in question, as well as the macroscopic uh, state of their environment. But crucially, what these agential level states do not encode is the precise underlying microphysical uh, state of the uh, world. So the key idea is, of course, that um, uh, agential level, higher level facts are multiply realizable um, and uh, they do not depend on the precise microphysical details. They could, those underlying microphysical details could be a little bit different and yet the um, agential level facts would remain um, exactly the same. So specifically in line with non-reductive physicalism, I'm going to assume that the agential states in outline S supervene on the underlying physical states in the set S, but those agential states are multiply realizable. Um, that is to say, the relationship between physical states and agential states is governed by a many-to-one supervenience mappings, which assigns to each physical state a corresponding agential state, but there could be different agential states um, so, sorry, there could be different physical states uh, that are compatible with the same agential level state. Um, let's say I'm in a particular agential level state right now, but if, for instance, a particular electron somewhere in my brain goes from spin up to spin down, uh, that will make a subtle difference to the uh, physical state, obviously, but that need not necessarily make a difference to the agential level state. And by the way, um, uh, this is a general point uh, that applies when we move from fundamental physics to the uh, descriptions employed in the special sciences. We typically engage in a process of coarse graining or um, abstraction where we abst deliberately abstract away from certain microphysical details, not just because we are ignorant of those microphysical details, but rather because those microphysical details are irrelevant and even a distraction from the perspective of picking out the higher level regularities that we are interested in. Um, just as a physical history was a temporal trajectory through the physical state space, so an agential history now is a temporal trajectory of the system through the agential level state space. Um, formally, this is a function from time into the set of agential states, uh, which assigns to each point in time the agential level state at that uh, time. And I'm going to use the notation outline age for the agential history rather than just uh, straight age uh, for the underlying physical history. Um, given the supervenience relation between physical and agential states, um, each physical history gives rise to a corresponding agential history, which can be obtained just by applying the supervenience mapping um, to the sequence of physical level states, and then we get the supervenient sequence of agential level states. Okay, so far so good. Um, we can then uh, consider not just the set of all nomologically possible physical histories, but we can also look at the corresponding set of possible agential histories. I'm going to write outline omega to denote those agential histories. And then an agential level proposition is going to pick out a subset of the set of agential level um, histories. 
And this proposition is true at some agential history, age, uh, outline age, if and only if this agential history belongs to the subset picked out by the um, proposition. So it's a perfectly analogous uh, definition to the, uh, to the earlier one. Uh, it's just that now we are uh, talking about agential histories and uh, agential level propositions, which pick out subsets of the set of all possible agential histories. Um, we can then define necessity and possibility operators at the, at the agential level in exact analogy to the necessity and possibility operators at the physical level. So now I'm just going to use the outline notation for box and diamond instead of the you know, flat notation uh, to, to denote uh, the relevant modal operators for the higher level. And uh, I'll define everything analogously to what we did before. So we're going to say that two agential level histories are accessible from one another if and only if, at, at a particular time t, if and only if their initial segment up to time t is, is, is the same and they diverge at most thereafter. And then necessity and possibility can be defined just as before. So for instance, an agential level proposition p is necessary at some agential history at time t if and only if p is true in all agential histories h prime that are accessible um, from the given uh, history and you know the dual definition is analogous for um, possibility. Okay, so it's just a little bit of formalism, but uh, uh, I uh, don't think that there is anything uh, you know con conceptually uh, unusual going on in in any of this uh, formal machinery. Now, crucially, agential-level propositions um, whose contents are subsets of outline omega are formally distinct from physical-level propositions whose contents are sub, uh, subsets of um, omega. Uh, even the loci at which those propositions take truth value are subtly different insofar as physical-level propositions take truth values at physical histories, while agential-level propositions take truth values at agential histories. And as should be clear, the modal operators for the two levels are uh, distinct. Um, not, not only uh, you know, are they f defined slightly, dif uh, well, in terms of different level-specific accessibility relations, but they also range over different domains of propositions. Um, the agential-level no modal notions in particular range over agential-level propositions, not uh, physical ones. Um, okay, so um, I, I hope that the ingredients of the formalism um, are clear at this point. Now, a key feature of this picture is that it actually renders physical level determinism entirely compatible with agential level indeterminism. And this is perhaps uh, you know, one of the key points that we get uh, from carefully distinguishing between physical and agential levels. And then I'm going to bring this point to bear on the consequence argument. Um, and I'll just give you a simple diagra diagrammatic example in which physical level determinism is true and agential level determinism isn't true and this should be sufficient to show that um, physical level determinism does indeed um, uh, not uh, uh, necessitate agential level determinism. Okay, so here we've got um, a, a very simple example of a bunch of um, uh, physical level histories. Let me just explain this. Um, so um, in this very simple example, we just have five time periods from uh, time one to time five. And um, the uh, dots here um, represent uh, states in which our system could be at a particular um, point in time. And uh, then Whenever you've got lines connecting dots, uh, that indicates that uh, this is one possible history uh, of the system. So for instance, the system could start in this particular state at time one, then move to this particular state at time two, then carry on to this state at time three, carry on to that state at time four, and so on. Or alternatively, if it starts in this particular state at time one, then it's going to be here at time two, at time three, time four, um, and, and so on. And uh, for, for the moment, forget about the, 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 the grid here. That will become significant only um, as we move um, along. Now, if you look at the shape of these histories, uh, it's clear that this system 
uh, behaves deterministically in quite an obvious sense, um, namely uh, the initial segment of any one of these histories here um, has only one possible continuation um, into the future, assuming that this indeed is a sort of full display of all the nomologically possible histories of the system. Or, you know, visually, you never see any branching or you never see any forks in the road uh, along any of these uh, uh, trajectories, and, and that's the sense in which we've got um, physical level determinism here. I'll vindicate this with a formal definition from uh, Van Inwagen's argument in, in a moment. Okay, but now um, remember, um, we can redescribe our system at a um, higher level, uh, namely the agential level, and uh, I've uh, assumed that there is a many-to-one supervenience uh, relation taking us from physical states to the agential level states that they realize. And for the purposes of this example, I'm simply assuming that whenever um, two or more distinct physical level states fall into the same cell within this rectangular grid, then they are different alternative realizers of the same agential level state in line with multiple realizability. So for instance, these are different alternative realizers of one and the same agential level state. These are different physical realizers of one and the same agential level state and so on. Um, so uh, the supervenience uh, mapping then assigns to each physical state the resulting agential level state and by implication, as I explained in my long list of definitions, the supervenience mapping can then also be applied to these histories to arrive at the agential level histories that are realized by those underlying physical level histories. And so here's what um, the system now looks like uh, once we've adopted this agential level redescription and applied the supervenience um, uh, mapping. And you will see immediately that these resulting agential level histories um, do exhibit branching in quite an obvious sense, namely that, uh, for instance, uh, from this agential level state onwards, there's not just you know, one unique uh, continuation of the agential level history into the future, but there are two or more distinct ones. So, the, um, so even if two of these agential level histories here coincide in the initial segment, for instance, you know, these and these coincide up to here in the initial uh, segment up to time three, they can still branch out in different directions. So that would be a scenario where we have um, agential level indeterminism, even though um, we had determinism at the underlying physical level. It's a very simple example of how physical level determinism is compatible with agential level indeterminism. Just to, um, I guess, go through the motions and convince you that um, uh, the, the, this, this claim uh, that I'm making here is uh, also fully in line with the definition of determinism employed in the um, consequence argument, I just want to point out that um, if we um, uh, let's say take P sub zero to be a physical level proposition that describes the initial state of the system at time one. Um, and we take L to be a proposition which describes the laws, then indeed uh, the um, proposition that one you know, Inwagen uh, uses to define determinism is going to be true uh, in this case as, as uh, one would hope. So for instance, P sub zero could be the proposition which says the initial state uh, at time one uh, is here. Um, then L, the proposition that describes the laws, can just be taken to pick out the set omega of all these histories in their entirety, precisely because those are all the uh, all and only the nomologically possible histories. And um, if we then consider any other proposition that is true of this history that begins at time one here, uh, you will immediately see uh, that uh, it must be the case that um, box if P zero and L then uh, P. Um, so uh, in other words, this very simple example is actually also a um, uh, you know, model of uh, this uh, particular um, 
uh, modal proposition here, which is the definition of determinism employed by Van Inwagen. Um, on the other hand, if we run through the same reasoning for the uh, agential level histories, uh, then it's clear that if we look at the um, uh, formula for determinism, but now applied to the agential level, that's not going to be uh, true of these histories. Uh, and so it's pretty clear that, again, if you take, let's say, P0 to be the proposition which says the agential state at time one is this, you take L to be the set of all the uh, possible agential histories displayed uh, here, and then you take um, outline P to be a proposition which um, uh, describes something that, let's say, happens to be true about the actual history, let's suppose that's the sort of leftmost one, then still we certainly will not, uh, at time one, we will certainly not have box if P0 and L, then uh, P. So uh, this is also a case of indeterminism in one in Wagen's terms. Okay, now, um, having uh, made this point that physical level determinism is compatible with agential level indeterminism, even when we employ the definition of determinism from the consequence argument, we're now in a position to see that there are two valid arguments in the vicinity of the consequence argument, um, but... Uh, Unfortunately, well, or fortunately, depending on your uh, philosophical view here, neither of them establishes the incompatibility of free will and physical level determinism. One of the two arguments is formulated at the physical level, and the other one is formulated at the agential level. Let's begin with the physical level argument. So for the purposes of the physical level argument, we're just going to now replace this... Uh, N operator, which is a little bit uh, uh, opaque and which I uh, argued uh, doesn't really you know, have a place in our physical level discourse, at least not under the intended agential interpretation. We're going to replace this with a sort of more um, uh, unproblematic uh, formula, physical level formula, namely instead of NP we're going to write not diamond, not P, so it's not the case that not P is um, possible. Um, and uh, then if you make the substitution, uh, and uh, apart from that, you just reproduce uh, every step of Van Inwagen's argument, including the inference rules, then this is a perfectly impeccable um, argument. I won't go uh, through the argument again and talk you through it. In fact, this substitution will also uh, you know, completely trivially make the inference rules uh, true. In fact, they'll become quite trivial in light of the duality between box and diamond. And this is certainly a valid um, argument. And indeed, if um, the world is uh, deterministic, uh, then it's not just a valid argument, but it's a sound argument as well. So far, so good. Um, the second argument is formulated at the agential level. Uh, and uh, now we're just going to um, you know, translate all of these propositions into agential level propositions. We're going to replace each of P0, L, and P with some agential level counterpart, uh, which would have to be the appropriate sort of supervenient, more uh, coarse-grained, uh, higher-level propositions. And we're going to use the agential level modal operators. And now in place of NP, we're going to write not diamond, not uh, P, um, the same rationale. The idea is that um, P would be agentially inevitable if it is not agentially possible that not P. That's actually exactly what, what we intend with, with, with NP. So uh, arguably, this is, this is actually the, the right way or certainly an admissible way of representing NP. And then we get this argument. Once again, this is a, this is a valid uh, argument. Um, the two rules of inference will unproblematically go through with the substitution in light of the duality between the agential box and agential diamond operators. But now let's sort of figure out what, if anything, we can learn from these arguments. These are two valid arguments, as I said, and they also look visually very much like the uh, consequence argument. But let's look at the first one, the physical level argument. 
So as I already said, it's clearly valid. If the world is deterministic, it's not just valid, it's even sound. But because it consists entirely of physical level propositions, proposition P is not going to be the intended action proposition. At most, it's going to be some physical level propositions about the physical supervenience base of the action, but that's not quite the action proposition. And the N operator, as understood as not diamond not, will not be the intended agential modal operator, but it'll be the dual of physical nomological necessity. Um, so it doesn't really establish the incompatibility of free will and determinism. It just establishes something else, but uh, the conclusion is kind of an unsurprising uh, conclusion. It's sort of a restatement of what you'd expect at, to happen at the physical level in a deterministic physical world. Let's move on to the second argument, the agential level argument. Now, that's also a valid argument, as I already pointed out. And it does establish an incompatibilist conclusion of sorts, insofar as um, I, I suggested that the not agential diamond not is an acceptable substitute for N, NP. What it does establish is that free will is incompatible with determinism at the agential level. So if the world was deterministic at the agential level, that's what the proposition in step one here says, then indeed we could not have free will. That strikes me as completely right. In fact, that strikes me as, as the correct consequence argument. And that strikes me as the correct incompatibilist conclusion that we can make. Free will is incompatible with, indeter with determinism at the agential level. If, if there was determinism at the agential or psychological level, that would indeed um, go against uh, free will. So I, I, I totally agree with that incompatibilist conclusion. That, that strikes me as totally impeccable. However, it's not clear that this is a sound argument despite its validity, because we've seen that physical level determinism does not rule out agential level indeterminism. To the contrary, I've shown you that physical level determinism can go along with agential level indeterminism. And so once again, the argument does not um, establish the originally intended conclusion, which was that free will is incompatible with, agent with physical level um, determinism. Okay, so in other words, the first argument, which was formulated at the physical level, doesn't give us the right conclusion because it uses the wrong modal operator in its conclusion, a physical level modal operator, even though it might well turn out to be a sound argument, but just one for the wrong conclusion. By contrast, the second argument is a valid argument for the right conclusion that, that Van Inwagen intends, but it doesn't quite have the right premise because the premise is agential level determinism, not physical level determinism. And of course, that, that premise uh, could be false even if the world is physically deterministic. And so that's why that argument, uh, I suggest, despite being valid and establishing the right conclusion, is not really sound. Okay, so let me wrap up. So I've suggested that the consequence argument problematically mixes two different levels of description. And the most problematic aspect of the mixing is its placing of physical level propositions within the scope of agential level modal operators, which I'm suggesting is not really meaningful. Once you've got an agential level modal operator, that really has to range over agential level propositions. We can defend free will against the argument by carefully separating these two levels. But the picture of free will that we end up with is nonetheless incompatibilist in one sense. Namely, the agential level variant of the consequence argument establishes the incompatibility of free will with agential level determinism. So that's the right incompatibilist conclusion to draw. And this supports a form of what we might call agential level incompatibilism. But crucially, um, though that's really a separate argument that I can't fit into today's talk, there's no reason to think that our best theories of intentional agency support determinism at the agential level. 
I mean, if they did, of course, we'd have to conclude that there is no free will. But I don't think uh, we have any good reason to accept agential level determinism. And for this reason, um, at the agential level, we have grounds for taking free will to be a real phenomenon. In other words, an agential level libertarian position is actually viable. And since agential level indeterminism is compatible with physical level determinism, this kind of libertarianism is nonetheless compatibilist in one sense. So you could express this by saying that we've got a picture of free will that is intra-level incompatibilist, namely at the agential level, but it is cross-level compatibilist insofar as uh, this higher level libertarian notion of free will can go along with physical level determinism. And that, in short, I think, justifies the label compatibilist libertarianism. Now, a lot more work is needed to show that we do really have free will. And I've given some of those arguments in this forthcoming book that Joe uh, mentioned. But I hope that this discussion uh, will help us to respond to at least one prominent argument against uh, free will. Thank you. <laughs>